I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I love cooking. I love talking about cooking. I love sharing what I know. But that is not the secret. No, the secret is that I do not know nearly as much about cooking as some people think I do. I love getting texts and calls and questions about cooking, and often I have the answers to those questions, or or at least an opinion. But often I don't know the answer, or I'm unsure enough that I want to double-check. And those times, which are a lot of the time, if I'm sharing secrets, those times I go to the same source to get the answer or to double-check my hunch. It's a source I trust because this source is grounded in science and in a whole, whole lot of cooking experience. This is a source that appears in the New York Times. This source is a James Beard Foundation Award winner. This source is a chef and restaurant owner and, more recently, a YouTube star. This source is the source who regularly makes me look extremely knowledgeable to friends who ask me for cooking advice. And today... I'm revealing my source. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back. I am Graham and this is Chef Demoni. If you're new here, Chef Demoni is my podcast about food. On the show, I talk to chefs and to food-loving lawyers. That is just because I have done both of those jobs over the years, and so those are the people I know. And that's really as simple as the show is. Years ago, I took a break from practicing law to cook professionally, but now that I am back to lawyering, Chef Timoni keeps me connected to the culinary world that I would otherwise miss far too much. Now, my source. My source. When I want to read up on poaching the perfect egg, when I have questions about pizza doughs and cooking methods for them, when I want a guide to cooking a piece of meat sous vide from someone who I just know has spent days and cooked many, many pieces of meat at different temperatures and for one hour and for four hours and for 24 hours, all so he can give me the best bang-for-my-buck approach to whatever the cooking job is that I'm about to tackle. Well, in those cases, I go first and consistently to Kenji Lopez-Alt. My wife, B and I were in Seattle recently, and I reached out to Kenji, who lives there, and he is exactly as helpful and friendly as he appears to be online. I mean, really, here is a guy with a jammed schedule and a huge audience. He must get questions all the time, and he got back to me right away. Kenji and I were not able to meet up in Seattle, but we did record soon after B and I got home from that trip, and that is the interview that you'll hear today. Kenji tells some great stories, including one about a plunger in the kitchen, and in our talk about pepperoni at the beginning of the interview, you are going to get a taste of Kenji's science-based approach to culinary things. Okay, I am going to keep the intro short today for this episode because there is so much to get to in my talk with Kenji Lopez-Alt. Let's get to it. chatting between uh, West Vancouver's where I am today and Seattle on a Monday afternoon. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. You know, so many of my listeners are going to recognize your name from a number of places. I think we read you in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. uh, I see you a lot on Instagram. 
on YouTube, of course. Uh, Serious Eats, I think, is where I first discovered your work. Uh-huh. And whenever I'm going to a problem, I, I Google, and almost inevitably I go to something you or one of your colleagues has written uh, often on Serious Eats. So thank you for being that resource. But, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, how do you define what you do now do you see yourself do you do you say i'm a chef i'm a writer i'm an author i'm i'm a guy who helps other people cook how do you see your work oh i don't know um i mean i I call myself a writer um because that's the main thing i do um although i guess you know i guess i spend probably more hours these days working on video content than than writing um so i don't know i'm a food communicator i'm certainly not a chef anymore because i don't have my you know well my restaurant still exists and still operates and is still doing fine but i'm not you know i'm not the guy in charge of the kitchen every day um so i wouldn't call myself a chef um but uh i know i consider myself a writer you know um and i think my my main skill is in communicating you know relatively complex ideas to, to in ways that uh, people can understand and that are hopefully useful to people um and i happen to do that about food uh just because that's sort of what my background ended up being in you know cooking um but I don't know when I when I write something I don't I don't know that it necessarily has to be about you know it's, I, I don't think it's that it's about food that uh, people seem to like my writing I think it's uh, I, you know in another life I could be I don't know writing about cars or writing about uh, <laughs> aerospace engineering or um, you know sea creatures I, I, I think you know I, I grew up watching science shows and cooking shows and um, uh, to me the subject was less important than sort of the way the communicator communicated it and the enthusiasm of the communicator. So that's that's sort of what I try and capture. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I think it's interesting that the other examples that you give, you know, sea creatures or cars, like there are other scientific pursuits. And I think there is definitely <laughs> an application, there is undoubtedly uh, an application by mm. you of science to cooking. And you, but, right. and you make that... I think it's fair to say that you know much more about the science than you communicate in your average piece, but you use the science to explain to people in everyday terms, if I can put it that way, why a Mm -hmm. step is important or why it's useful. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think the goal is always, always practicality. Well, not always practicality, but, you know, sometimes I write, I've written, I don't know, I wrote an article about why pepperoni curls and that's not really a practical piece of information but it's a really cool cool piece of information it's it's really interesting why pe- some pepperoni curls and doesn't but anyhow um for the most part wait, my wait, goal can, is, you, is real... can you tell us quickly why does some pepperoni oh, yeah, curl? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so i thought initially you know my initial hypothesis was that okay pepperoni curls when you certain pepperoni curls when you put it on top of pizza because of the temperature the temperature differential between the top and the bottom of the slice when it's cooking and so the top contracts more and that causes causes it to cup up and curl that's not actually the case. The The reason why is actually because of the relative density of the force meat of the of the actual sausage inside the casing. Okay. Um, and so when you have stretchier casings, like, for, for example, when you have like a, a collagen casing or a, cellu- a cellulose casing, something that is a sort of not natural casing, it stretches a little more. And so your pepperoni ends up, the force meat in there ends up being relatively evenly dense. Whereas when you use a natural casing, that's not quite as stretchy. The pepperoni, uh, the, the sausage in the, around the 
edges of it is more densely packed than the sausage in the center or, or the other way around. I can't remember off the top of my head. And so it's actually the difference in density that causes the outside to contract more than the center contracts when the pepperoni cooks. So whether you're so the, the an interesting thing you can do is so this is directional, right? Because when you for, when you stuff a sausage, you put the you put the hog intestine over the sausage stuffer and it pushes the meat in through one side. And so some of the meat actually ends up sort of clinging to the walls while some of it gets pushed down the center. And so when you a, a, a pepperoni is directional, actually. So if you slice it open, you'll see this slice it open lengthwise and look at the grain of the meat in there. You see this almost U-shaped pattern in there and it's directional. So one side of the pepper, the pepperoni is going to curl uh, in, in the shape of that U-shape that you see in there. Which means that if you take, um, it, it's going to tend to curl that way. It will curl either direction if you force it to curl the other direction. So that's why that is why pepperoni on pizza always curls up, and that's due to the temper the temperature differential causes the directionality of that to change. But if you take slices of pepperoni and put them on a plate and microwave them so that it's heating evenly from both sides. The pepperoni slices, the pepperoni slices that you put upside down will curl down. The pepperoni ah. slices that you put right side up will curl up. So it's really interesting. I don't know. I found that really interesting. <laughs> I um, agree. Completely useless on a practical <laughs> level, but really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fascinating. One of my one of my favorite pizza places is uh, called Pizza Rock in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a Detroit that features cupped pepperoni. That is the most right, extreme right. example that I've ever seen of that. Yeah, I think that that style was kind of started at Prince Street Pizza in New York that the uh the idea of like putting tons and tons of pepperoni and now now it feels like yeah it's all over the place now lots of places in New York do it. I find places like that in Seattle um and even places that used to do sort of flat sitting pepperoni um have switched to cuppy pepperoni recently yeah. and you know in big companies like Hormel you can go to you can go to the supermarket and buy you know cup and crisp pepperoni like the, you, to use at home it's just became Intensely popular. I think. I think it was actually my friend, um, my old friend and colleague Adam Kuban, who was at Serious Seats. He started a, a blog called Slice and a blog called the Hamburger Today way back in like two thousand four, two thousand five, early days of food blogs. But he um, he had a haiku contest uh, for uh, to to write haikus about this cuppy pepperoni. And so one of the one of the readers. Um, wrote this great haiku where he referenced cuppy to he referenced cuppy pepperoni as. Um, crispy grease chalices which i think is a like a wonderful way to think of it because they have those crispy edges but a little pool of grease in the bottom uh and uh that was i don't know 2008 maybe that adam started really writing a lot about this cuppy pepperoni and then i think a lot of the new york shops like who read his work were like oh we should people want this stuff we should do it and then it's kind of taken on a life of its own since then (laughs) we should get on it well yeah it is it is striking and it is delicious the the further i get into middle age the the more i try to limit my consumption but it's oh yeah (laughs) it remains tempting let's shift to uh something to drink here and i've noticed on instagram particularly lately uh, mm-hmm. in the last month or two anyway, you've been posting a lot about your efforts on latte art, on making lattes. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me about that, both your, well, your your journey, who you've learned from, and, and really I'm asking about latte because it's recent on your Instagram feed, mm-hmm. but also because I think it speaks to your process of how you learn things and how you share things. So I'd just love to hear from you about starting latte and, and learning to get better. Yeah. So the latte art thing was my, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a coffee drinker. Like I don't, I don't drink coffee daily. Um, I, you know, I, I say that I, I enjoy coffee the way I enjoy chocolate, which is like once in a while, if, if something sounds interesting, I'll, I'll have a little bit of it and be like, oh, that's interesting. You know, it's like, I, I don't, I don't drink coffee as a functional beverage. I drink it as a, a beverage of enjoyment, but the latte art thing was really more, 
you know, I, I like learning new things. And in fact, I was just listening to this episode of um, Radiolab. I don't know if you listen to that podcast. I know. Uh, yes, I have WNYC. in the past, yeah. Fantastic podcast, but they just had an episode about longevity and particularly from the, so they had a couple of um, experts in uh, memory science and sort of time perception uh, as guests on the show. And the, you know, the basic idea is that we extend our life, like we measure our lives by new experiences and by building, by building memories. And you really only build memories when you do something out of the ordinary. So it can be something as simple as like, you know, uh, one day you'd switch to a new shampoo, right? And so suddenly you go into the, into the shower and there's some, there's a new experience in there. And that actually builds a memory that didn't exist before. And it plays, puts this like a little flag marker in your head and say, Hey, this happened, which really actually makes your life feel longer, even though the time obviously doesn't ah. pass any slower, but, but anyhow, I th- it, that's a sl- slight digression. But the idea was that I, I, um, I enjoy learning new things and I feel I, I want to fill my days with new experiences all the time. And so the latte art thing was really just a attempt to learn something new. And I, <laughs> yes. and I was in Seattle, I was in Seattle and I was like, okay, well, I'm like in the, in, in the epicenter of third wave coffee and latte art, you know, latte art was literally invented here. And there's this like wealth of expert knowledge. So maybe I should take advantage of that. Uh, so it, it's part, I mean, partly it's sort of ex- experimentation with what kind of, you know, what kind of content might work, you know, whether this could be a video series or a TV series, not just on latte, but on sort of learning new things, the idea of learning new things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also just a cool way to connect with a community that I'd never really connected with before. Um, and I think, you know, you find very quickly that if you show genuine interest in something that someone is an expert in, they are very willing to share their knowledge. Like almost everybody is very willing, like wants to teach people things, wants to show people things. Um, and so, you know, initially I reached out to my friend Grant Crilly, who, and, and, and you know, I, bearing in mind that, yes, I know I have I have great connections. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, if you have a friend who's great at something and you ask them to show you what they do, I'm sure they will be thrilled to show you and you'll learn something new. But, the, you know, I, I started working with Grant Crilly, who's um, an old friend of mine who runs this company called uh, who's the head of this company called Chef Steps. They do great cooking videos. They mm-hmm. produce uh, they partner with Breville and produce hardware as well. Um, but he's very good at making latte art and also very good at explaining things. Um, and so. I spent some time at the Chef Step Studios, like learning how to make lattes from him and sort of going over the theory of latte art. And then I found once I started sharing a bit of that on Instagram, um, then a whole bunch of, you know, baristas were like, oh, like come into our shop and learn. Uh And so, you know, I, I... I got um, I got lessons from the head uh, b- the the barista trainer at uh, Olympia Coffee. His name is Honor, and he uh, he taught me a bunch of stuff. I learned from Brandy, who's the head trainer at Anchorhead Coffee. Um, I, I I went to I don't know I, I think four different coffee shops mm-hmm. um, and worked with baristas. Uh, and what's really interesting is that everybody's wonderful at what they do but they all have different advice and different ah, opinions, different on, techniques, on te- and different-, <laughs> different techniques and different ideas about how, what I should be practicing and what I should be working on. So in some sense, you know, learning, trying to learn from four different teachers is harder than just learning from one because you're not sure whose advice you should take, or you're not sure what the most effective way to practice something is. But ultimately I find it very interesting just to hear people um, who are really, you know, masters at their craft, talk about how to get better at that craft. And, and of course, the idea was never with this latte art thing or with, you know, and, and if I continue doing, you know, I, I want to do this, like, I want to learn how to make croissants. I want to learn how to forge a knife. I want to learn how to, like, you know, all, uh, all things that are sort of cooking related for now. But, but uh, I, w- I want to learn from experts. And the idea is not to not to try and get as good as them at it because mm-hmm. you can't, right. you know, you're, I'm yeah. not, in order to get good at latte art, I'm going to have to work at a, at a um, at a cafe making you know a hundred lattes a day, a day for yeah 
Yeah, exactly. Like that, that's how I got good at cooking by working in restaurants, you know, um, and it's, um, so the idea is not to get as good as that at it, but really sort of, I think to celebrate the, what I find to be sort of the joy of, uh, progress and, and, uh, the idea that practicing things, uh, leads to incremental improvement that you can see. It, it's also something that in, in some ways, you know, I have a six year old daughter and a two year old son, uh, and getting kids to practice things is tough. Right. Like my, my daughter does plays violin and we practice together 45 minutes every day. Uh, it's, it's hard for me. It's even harder for her. I, I, I grew up doing the same thing. and It was very difficult for me. You know, at six years old, asking for 45 minutes of their time every day, time. doing something that they don't necessarily love. You know, some there are good moments and there are bad moments, but they're mostly like it's hard. It's hard work. Um, and so. I do want to sort of also lead by example there. And so, you know, I've taken up a few new hobbies that I show. I practice every day. Like I practice piano every day. I'm not good at it. I practice it every day though. And she hears me practice and sort of sees the progress. And so, you know, similarly, like the latte thing, it's like, I, I made five lattes every morning for you know, like a month. Uh, and she saw me doing that and we, we saved all the lattes and it's in the freezer. Now we're going to make latte ice cream with it. But, oh, nice. but she was also like, Oh, you know, sort of judging them, like saying like, okay, like this one looks good. Like, Oh, you got like a clear line here. No, that one looks like a slug. It doesn't look like a heart or whatever it is. Um, and so, she got to see the progress also. And so to me, um, the idea of teaching my daughter the importance of, of practice and also sort of the difficulty of practice and that it's not going to be an overnight thing. You're going to make slow progress, but slow progress is still progress. And you can celebrate those little steps uh, and feel great about those little steps along the way. I was going to ask you this question later, Kenji, but it's tied to something you said, and it's about uh, latte and what kind of content this would be. And would it be, um, mm-hmm. I, I suppose, would it be interesting. So two thoughts strike me here. One, you are completely unafraid, it seems to me, to put up your works in progress uh, and say, this is <laughs> this is what I'm working on, right? And, and, and this is not going to be the prettiest latte you've ever seen, but here's why I'm doing it. And, and uh, sharing your knowledge. And, and I think that shows humility and an interest in teaching other people. So that's one thing I find interesting. And then the other, and I'll just get maybe get your thoughts on both is, this notion around social media that negativity does better than positivity in terms of clicks and likes mm. and reshares and that kind of thing. And it seems to me you stay away from that as well. So am I, I right on both that. of those? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try to, both those things I think are linked because there's certainly a time in my life when I wouldn't have posted my progress shots, you mm-hmm. know, where I would have, oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, would have only showed the good results. And, you know, I, it's almost, it's almost like when you, uh, and I don't, I don't know if this is familiar to you, but like, it's like, all right, when you finally decide, hey, you know what, maybe I'll, maybe I'll see a therapist, right? And it's like, oh, it's it like it kind of opens a door and it's like, oh, this is, this is actually a lot better than I thought it would right. be. This and is okay. Great and useful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great and useful. This is okay. Like, why hadn't I done this before? And so in the same sense, um, I feel like when I started doing my, my GoPro YouTube yes. footage, you know, my, yep. my YouTube videos where I just stick a camera on my head and cook something. It's all, it's none of it is planned. Virtually none of it is planned. There's some here and there, but I usually mention if it's planned, but, um, not almost none of it is planned and, uh, and it's not scripted and I'm cooking in my home kitchen and there's like my kids messes are around my messes are around. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's all real stuff. And, and the reality is that when you don't have like a, a, a team and a studio and a well-planned, you know, like everything meased out, like things go wrong. Like everybody, no matter how good a cook you are, when you're cooking in real life, things go wrong. Um, and early on there sort of, I did kind of make the decision, you know what, like if I mess something up, it's going to stay in. 
and and especially early on, it was actually difficult. It was like, all right, I, I oh man, I completely flubbed this pizza. Uh, I'm not going to put this video up, but I you know, I, I kind of have to tell myself no. I committed to this. I'm going to do it. And, you know, what I found was that actually the response to that was wonderful. You know, it's like people actually really enjoyed uh, and, and, and not just wonderful in the sense that, you know, I think people enjoyed seeing that, but it actually made people feel more confident in their own abilities. And I think right. it, um, and yeah. it's what it, it makes people feel, you know what, like, all right, it's OK if I mess up. And I think that's yeah. an important thing, because in a lot of food cooking content, especially a sort of a lot of really produced content like the food looks perfect and everything comes out exactly the way it's supposed to come out. And that's just not the reality of anything. You know, that's no chef in the world cooks everything perfectly every time. And so uh, I think for people to see that, and especially for people to see like, all right, if, if, if you mess something up, how do you recover it? First of all, how do you recover it? And, and also how can you have the attitude that it's okay if it's messed up? It's just like one meal of the, you know, of the 35 meals I'm going to eat this week or whatever, whatever, 21 meals I'm going to eat this week, however many meals you eat in a week. It's just one out of the 21 normal people eat in a week. It's not that big a deal if something gets messed up. I think that helps. And, you know, another thing, it's like the the positivity element uh, I I found, well, there's, you know, I got some good advice from an old friend, Anil Dash, who, who was a kind of web, web 2.0 guru. Um, But early on in the early days of series, he's, you know, he mentioned to me that, um, your community is only as good as you moderate it. And so if you, if you allow sort of negative negativity to seep into it, it just becomes, yeah, a pool of negativity. And so if you want it to be positive, you have to maintain that positive attitude. And you also have to make sure that your audience maintains that off uh, that positive attitude and know that sort of negative behavior won't be tolerated. It's like, it's like, it's almost like, I don't know, my trying to teach a, a, a class, you know, a class of students, uh, like my, you know, my kids and my, my daughter in, in first grade right now, they don't allow kids to hit each other. They don't allow kids sure, to be to mean bully to each other, other and them. yeah, to bully each other. And so why do, why do we let adults do that? And when adults should know better and, you know, of course, yeah, freedom of speech, whatever. Sure. You can have your freedom of speech, but you don't, you don't get to say whatever you want on my forums because partly it's, I, I want it to be a place where people who come and visit know that they're not going to get this like if they want to get the negative internet, there's a million places you can do that. <laughs> yeah. But if you want just like, if you, if you want to come in and know like, all right, this is going to be like a place where I can get good interactions with people. I can come here to find useful information and come away with a positive experience. Like I want to, I want people to have that. Um, it's also a largely for my own personal mental health. Like sure. I, I am the type of person who would easily get sucked into these negative debates and negative conversations on the internet. And I, and I have to work hard that so that I don't. And a lot of that process is making sure that, the content I put out there, as much as I feel is possible, there are exceptions. But for the most part, I try and keep it um, positive, you know, and, and as far as sort of, you know, restaurant review content or recommendations, um, you know, people say, oh, I only ever, I only ever say good things about places. And, you know, that's, that is also a sort of conscious choice. And it's something we also decided relatively early on in this, in the series Eats Days that it's, it's partly, it's partly that, um, First of all, like I, I don't like to judge a place negatively based on one or two experiences because you know everybody can have bad days and, and nobody deserves to be punished for bad days um, or even a bad week or whatever you know yeah. nobody deserves to be punished for that. But but it's also as a service to readers. I find you know if you recommend a good place, it services everybody who lives in that area. Like if I say, hey, here's a great slice of pizza in Seattle, everybody in Seattle who reads my content could say, okay, here's a place I can go get a good slice of pizza and it services all of them. If I say, here's a bad slice of pizza in Seattle, it doesn't really help that many people because the vast majority of my audience, even the ones who live in Seattle, were probably never going to go to that pizzeria in the first place. So like the handful of people who were thinking of going there 
maybe it'll service them a little bit and get them to stay away. But on the other hand, it's also like maybe they'll like it in a way that I didn't. Right. So, uh, honestly, like, you know, expending energy telling people not to do something is I, I just don't find it to be a very good use of time or resources for me. Um, and so if I, if I don't like something, I, I, you know, if it's a real big issue, maybe I'll talk to the the restaurant or I'll talk mm-hmm. to the chef or whatever mm-hmm. and explain what I didn't like and sort of, but generally I think if, if I don't like something, it doesn't help anybody uh, to tell them I didn't like it. You know, it makes, it makes the, the people working there feel bad and it's not really a service to the viewers or the readers either. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you think that there is, I, I think there is a huge role of, of ego and insecurity around cooking, which is one of the mm-hmm. reasons that I like the work that you do when you publish your flubs and say, here's a mistake, that kind of thing. Because I think a lot of your readers, your viewers, um, I put myself in this category can go, well, holy moly, if Kenji screwed this up, well, this is not a, this is not a big deal for me to have burned, <laughs> you know, to have burned my pizza. Do you think there, and some of your recipes, particularly, I'm thinking of a couple of posts recently. One was uh, gnocchi mm-hmm. with roasted mushrooms, peas, uh-huh. chives, and garlic cream. And yeah. I love gnocchi. I love making it, but it's time consuming, as uh-huh. you know, and, and things can go wrong. But what I loved about that post was you were using packaged gnocchi and you said, I, I can't, right. can't remember the brand. But do you think. I think it was Tacheco. I don't know. Okay, yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter, I don't think, except that. Here's it's a guy brand they had at the, the, yeah. the market like two blocks away. Two blocks away, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love store. that because I think so many people, I can only imagine what it's like for you because I have experiences where people come over to my house for dinner and I cooked a tiny, tiny little bit professionally and people will say, oh, it's so, I'm so intimidated to go to Graham's house. He's cooking us dinner. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding? Like, if you could see me in a real kitchen, I am an ant on the floor here, right? So <laughs> I, is that is that intentional on your part to try to get home cooks to relax a bit? Like, just use the packaged gnocchi sometimes. I mean, showing it is intentional. Uh, the fact that I use it is just practical. Okay, yeah. You know, it's like uh, I was making dinner. I've got two kids. Like, I took my daughter. I don't remember exactly what I did to that that day, but probably I, I picked my daughter from school, practiced music with her, took her to gymnastics, came home and we had half an hour before dinner, you know, like, which is what happens on most weekdays. And I think that happens to a lot of parents, you know, so it's like, yeah, I'm not going to make gnocchi from scratch on that day. You know, there are, there are weekends where I'll make gnocchi from scratch with my friend, with my kids or with my friends. Sure. Cause it's a project too. It's fun. Yeah, exactly. But, um, a dish like that, it's, I don't see why you would, you know, it's even making, even from a cost perspective, you know, buying like a $5 bag of gnocchi is not really, it's not really uh, much more expensive than than you know buying the potatoes, turning on the oven, uh, buying the eggs. You know, like all all it, it all is from both a, a cost and a practicality perspective. I think um, store bought stuff is generally fine to do. Um, <laughs> that said, it's like you know I th- I do think it's great to know how to make how to make gnocchi, um, and and you know that particular dish was a dish that I. Um, was based on one of the one of my my one of my very first restaurants, sort of my first high end restaurant jobs. I was a uh, I worked at a place called Number Nine Park in Boston, and uh, I was on the pasta station. So I, I made gnocchi from scratch every day um, for that. And and even actually even then, when I was literally making it every day, there was a, I, I do remember a day when um, <laughs> I, I you know the goal with gnocchi with potato gnocchi at least is always to use as little flour as possible because the flour makes it sort of denser and gummier um, and the potato is what makes it sort of lighter. So the goal is to use as little flour as possible, just enough flour so that they hold together. And there was a day when I was kind of pushing it and I didn't use quite enough flour. And, you know, early, like right at the beginning of the day or halfway through service, I realized, all right, my gnocchi are kind of, half of them are falling They're apart. They're disintegrating. In the pasta machine. I've been there. Yeah. Disintegrating. Yeah. Into this like big, 
and it, and it's a, we had this like big six pot pasta boiler, so six basket pasta boiler, a giant thing that boils maybe twenty gallons of water. But over the course of service, like the gnocchi were dissolving into it and eventually clogged the tube where the water circulates and gets heated. Um, and so the pasta machine oh. just stopped working. Um, <laughs> and I remember that day, uh, my um, I, my my first reaction, and you know, bearing in mind this was like month one and a half or so of my first high end restaurant job, and I was really trying to kind of prove myself. You know, my chef always said, "Yeah, you know." you don't want to you don't want you don't i can't handhold you all the time you got to think for yourself you got to think on your feet um that's part of the job of a restaurant cook right and so i was like okay pos machines clogged i can deal with this myself uh and i i ran to the bathroom and grabbed a plunger and stuck it into the pasta machine uh, and got the pasta machine flowing again and then like turned around like beaming like holding this plunger and then my chef's just like staring at me like like you, this look of horror you, you, you like, can't what have you do done? that you, what have you done <laughs> Anyhow, so I spent, um, we, we cooked the rest of the pasta in pots on the stove during that service, and then I spent hours, like, disassembling and sanitizing. And sanitizing. <laughs> yeah, anyhow, that, that, but that's the kind of, you know, it's like, all right, if I, I, I'm happy to share that story today, because, you know, everybody messes up. Um, yeah. And, you know, the good thing about packaged gnocchi is that that's not going to happen to you. That's right. <laughs> there would be no plunger involved. Yeah. <laughs> This just remind. I have a very specific question and a selfish, selfish question for you. I have now twice in my life cooked pizza on our new Uni uh, Coda. This is not an ad. Mm-hmm. I just we bought this little pizza oven. It's the Coda sixteen mm-hmm. uh, gas fired oven. I got the stone ripping hot. I made sourdough pizza mm-hmm. dough um, from Maurizio Leo, who, who's the perfect loaf. His recipes, which I love. Yeah. But here's the challenge I ran into. I did turn the heat down a little bit because I was finding that the the edges of the pizza was puffing up nicely, but they were getting too charred. Like too a, a little uh-huh. bit of char is great. And I couldn't find that line. I couldn't turn it down enough. I've since Googled and read there's an ultra low setting or something that I need to try. But is is that what mm. I'm missing? Do I just need to turn that heat down once the stone itself is super hot? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the style of pizza you want, but certainly, um, yes. If 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 you're if the top of your, if the bottom's coming out as crisp as you want, and the and the top and the edges are burning before the bottom is coming out to that level, um, yeah. you do you do want to turn it down. You know, so with with pizza, um, well, with most things, the the hotter the temperature in the oven, sort of the bigger contrast you're going to get between the interior texture and the outside, and sort of the the thinner the crust you're going to get. So with a Neapolitan style pizza, you um, it should have this almost eggshell thin thinner than an eggshell thin crust um layer of christmas and then the inside should be very sort of cloud-like and uh and moist whereas with a you know and that bakes in that bakes at a thousand degrees 900 degrees it does that it bakes in about 60 to 90 seconds whereas a new york style pizza has a slightly thicker crust you know a crust that's thick enough that you can hold up a slice and mm-hmm, it, it's it not delivers gonna out right it doesn't flop over the way a Neapolitan slice does. Um, and so for that, and, and a slightly more sort of even browning, you still get some dark, you know, in a good New York pizza, I think you still get some good dark charred spots, but it's not going to be sort of the, the leopard spotting that you get in a Neapolitan pizza where right. you get these like really dark spots and the rest is really pale. And so for that more even browning and the thicker crust, um, you want to use a relatively lower temperature. So a New York pizza, instead of 900 degrees for 60 to 90 seconds, it's more around 600 degrees for you know, four minutes or so, four to five minutes. And so, yeah, you do, you, if, if your problem is that you're getting too much char, but before your sort of crust structure is setting, setting up, uh, you definitely want to turn it down uh, more. Um, you know, and pizza, it's one of these things that it's, it, it's not, it's not a set it and forget it 
uh, no. <laughs> type thing. You you know, you, you they bake so fast. They bake, you know, anywhere between, you know, 60 seconds and maybe five minutes. Maybe, you know, if you're doing a real different style pizza, maybe it'll bake for you know, 10, 12 minutes. But even that's a relatively fast cooking time. And and even slight oven temperature differences um, will cause one side to darken a lot more than the other side or the top to let darken more than the bottom. So you, pizza, as it's baking, you kind of always got to be peeking in, turning it around, rotating it, peeking underneath, making sure that it's all kind of cooking at the rate that you want it so that if the bottom's cooking too fast, you you can lift it up with your peel so that it's not touching the bottom of the oven. Or if the top's cooking too fast, you slide it closer to the oven door or you turn down the heat in your oven so that it's not really getting as much of the direct blast of heat. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'll report back on how round three goes. Right. I hope it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, another food science question, because I've tried it works. I'd love to hear you comment on it, though. It's fitting for both of us being on the west coast your dry brining of salmon and the overnight mm-hmm. can you just walk through because i've done it and it works but why does it work yeah okay so dry brining uh, some people take issue with the, with the term dry brining essentially it just means salting Salt. and letting it sit sure. salting and letting it sit um and so in the case of salmon um you know i season it um, if you have like a five ounce fillet i would use about a teaspoon of kosher salt, but, um, you know, generally you would season it with the amount of salt that you would season it before cooking. Um, so the technique actually is, is the, the technique of salting fish and letting it rest before cooking is very common in Japan. In fact, you know, it was used widely in preservation before, uh, before refrigeration in Japan. But, um, so there's this dish called, um, shiozake, so salt salmon. And, and sometimes it's abbreviated as, as shake, but salted salmon. And it's a breakfast dish. So you take salted salmon and you broil it, uh, and eat it over rice. And it's popular enough that even in modern days of refrigeration, people still salt their salmon uh, not as heavily as they used to but they still salt their salmon and you know so i i started using this technique and trying it for sort of more western preparations of fish so whether like grilling fish or pan searing it or whatever um, and what i found was that when you salt salmon and let it rest overnight in the fridge it eliminates a lot of the problems that i have with that i have and i think a lot of people have with fresh salmon one of them is that the salmon splatters less in the pan you know so splattering in a pan comes when moisture from inside the meat whether it's a steak or a chicken breast or a salmon when moisture from inside it you know as the as the as the muscles cook they contract and they squeeze out moisture and when that moisture mixes with the oil in the pan it it evaporates or it boils very rapidly and violently and that's what causes the the splattering oil popping out it's the little bubbles of moisture that are popping out you know rapidly evaporating and causing the oil to splatter um so it almost eliminates pan splatter which not only sort of it keeps you safer you know you don't get the little burns um it keeps your it keeps your stovetop cleaner it also keeps the air in your kitchen smelling mm. better you know you don't you don't get that um <laughs> oily fish aroma sort of permeating the house at least not as much um the other thing it does is that it greatly reduces the amount of sort of white albumin like the gooey stuff that comes out on the side of a salmon as you cook it it reduces the amount of white albumin that um, comes out and coagulates so your salmon looks a lot cleaner and it cooks a lot cleaner and finally when you actually eat it it tastes juicier as well um so you know i i I did some experimenting with this and i and i reached out to my old colleague and uh harold mcgee who uh, is the author of on food and cooking um he's sort of the i think the the grandfather of uh, of food science of home food science certainly like one of the biggest influences on my career like I, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for him but anyhow I reached out to him and talked to him about it and um, essentially I mean essentially what's going on is that just just as in a when you're brining a chicken or a turkey or, or or salting a steak as that salt sort of works its way through the salmon uh, it's dissolving certain muscle proteins um, mainly a protein called myosin which then in turn prevents the muscles from contracting as much when they cook um, so so there's actually two things going on part of it is that 
overnight, when you leave the salmon in your fridge overnight uncovered, the salmon dries out. It loses about 8% of its moisture, 7 or 8%. So when you cook the salmon, so when you cook a fresh piece of salmon to, say, rare, it'll end up losing about 10% of its moisture, of its weight in moisture. About 10% of water, of, of its moisture comes out. Um, and all of that comes out into the pan in splatters. When you cook a piece of brine salmon, it's already lost 8% of its moisture in the fridge. And it actually ends up losing about the total, the um, same amount of water total. But... Most of that water loss happens in the fridge instead of in the pan. And so you have less splatter there. Um, Moreover, the water that's left in there actually binds better, binds better to the proteins in there now that they've been slightly partially dissolved. And so when you eat the salmon, fresh salmon by comparison to brine salmon, when you bite into fresh salmon, it could be, there could be plenty of moisture in there, but the moisture will kind of shed itself relatively rapidly in your mouth. So it almost has a comparatively sort of wet feel to it at the beginning and then as you continue to chew it the bits get sort of drier and drier whereas brine salmon the water is bound in there more tightly so when you when you chew it it doesn't feel wet it just feels moist and juicy all the way through to the end of the bite and and then as far as sort of the albumin goes um, because you have less moisture coming out from inside of the salmon during the cook that you know that albumin comes out when it, it, it hitches a ride onto the water that's coming out and gets pushed out to the side of the salmon where it then cooks and coagulates and forms that kind of ugly um, white gunk on the side of the salmon so because there's less moisture coming out you have less of the albumin coming out uh, and so your salmon ends up looking looking a lot prettier, tasting better, uh, and keeping your kitchen cleaner. So it's a very simple process. You just salt your salmon, put it on a rack in the fridge overnight uncovered, uh, and then cook it exactly as you would any other salmon. And it comes out, I think, significantly better. Yeah, in terms of bang for the buck, in terms of effort versus reward, it's uh, it's tough to beat that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, especially if you're in the Pacific North- Northwest and you eat a lot of salmon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Kenji, just a couple of more questions. One, I'm curious... What is a perfect dinner party or get-together in your world? Do you like to host people? Do you like to go to other people's houses? Do you prefer to get friends together and go out to eat? What's a, what is, what's a great food get-together for you? <laughs> um, for me, you know, I think yeah, the ideal dinner party, if I'm having people over, is cooking something I've, I've done before and something that's easy, something I don't have to think too hard about. You know, so I, I don't look to impress people with, like, crazy techniques or whatever. I just cook something that's good. And I know will be, you know, will be, I, I, something that I know I enjoy. Um, it could be, you know, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll cook, I will cook something that has some sort of sort of cultural or fam- family um, significance to us. So, you know, a very popular dinner party thing when we have guests over is I'll cook Colombian food. My wife is Colombian and I, I've learned how to cook Colombian food over the years, um, mainly from her aunt. Um, you know, cause we, we go down to Colombia a couple times a year and every time I, I try and learn more about the cuisine. So I like having dinner parties uh, where I cook Colombian food because my wife always loves Colombian food. It's very great for large gatherings because it's very generally very simple stuff like good beans, rice, um, you know, fried plantains, maybe you know, it's very simple and delicious things that are sort of, you know, generally crowd pleasers. It's, it's difficult to find people who, who won't like anything that you cook there. Um, and you know, for a dinner party, I'm, I mainly want to spend my time hanging out with people. I don't uh, want to be the only yeah. one stuck in the kitchen. I, um, I do <laughs> like, you know, being in the kitchen, but I want, I want people to be able to in there, be there in there with me, uh, and not feel stressed running around. And I, you know, same thing. If like if I'm going to someone's house for a dinner party, I, my, you know, I, I would like to, you know, I, I enjoy going in and lending a hand if they if they need help. Um, I w- I never sort of, but you know, I, I try and remember. Hey, this is this is not my party. This is not my kitchen. Uh, I'm here to learn about other people. Like they invited me into their home, um, so I want to learn about them. And so I think in general, if everyone, everybody on both sides of a dinner party, you know, taking it easy and 
um, not trying too hard to impress is 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 the, is the right approach. <laughs> Be there. Um, I, I'm I'm generally a very good guest. I think I'm 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 uh, I'm. I, I like eating a wide variety of foods. Uh, I don't care how fancy or simple it is. Um, and honestly, I don't care if the food is terrible. Like I, you know, for me, the goal of a dinner party is to get friends together around yes. the table and enjoy each other's company. And so if your friends are coming over, if your family's coming over and you're all sitting around, then like the food's already done its job. You, you've already you know, won. The, I, like I remember I had a dinner party last November with a friend, uh, like almost a year ago with a friend of ours in Seattle here. They invited us over. They made a homemade lasagna, which was amazingly um amazing 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 an amazing gesture because you know a homemade lasagna with homemade pasta takes a lot of time to prepare um they made that it was in the oven and the casserole dish cracked oh uh and and but it's whatever it's like so we 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 got i i I was like oh you know what we are two blocks away from um what's it called oh my goodness i'm I'm blanking on the name of the pizzeria (laughs) now Uh, but we're two blocks away from this wonderful pizzeria in ballard that uh why don't why don't i just order some pizza i'll go pick it up yeah we'll just hang out and like so it's like you know i think they were kind of stressed out that this broke but who cares yeah it's like the the effort was there like we were enjoying each other's company like we'll get takeout pizza and we will still enjoy each other's company (laughs) we'll make it work that reminds me we had a dinner party not that long ago where one of our guests i learned far too late like during the evening has an avocado allergy Mm. and he said you know it's not anaphylactic or anything but it's going to make for an unpleasant night for me and all of my prep had been done with avocado oil and so everything except I'd made these wonderful mashed potatoes that were ready to go with a beef dish, I think. But the beef dish had avocado oil in some step of it. So this guy got, yeah. and he in very good humor about it, he got uh, mashed potatoes topped with frozen pizza. There you go. (laughs) Um, Delancey. The pizzeria is Delancey. Okay. I I, I want to plug it because they're wonderful. (laughs) Excellent. And they saved our dinner party. Saved the day. Awesome. Very last few questions. Kitchen tools, any quick advice on things that are super useful to have that are just basics that every cook should have? And maybe it's just everybody should have an eight-inch chef's knife. I don't know. And then then one useful splurge in the kitchen. I think a big cutting board. Like uh, I, I find that that's the thing that I find most useful when I go, when I go to someone else's house and they have a very small cutting board and it makes it really cramped and difficult to work. I think a night, like a nice big cutting board, you know, the biggest one your counter can fit is, uh, w- would be my advice. I find it much more pleasurable to work on a, on a large cutting board and a mortar and pestle. I find mortar and pestles are mm. one of the tools that are most underutilized, but I am most useful. Like I use a mortar and pestle virtually, um, not every day, but at least sort of three to four times a week for Grinding spices, crushing garlic. Also, great. They're great tools if you have kids because kids love smashing things and they can actually be really good helpers in the kitchen if you give them a mortar and pestle to work with. <laughs> and uh, let's see, a splurge. Well, I, I'm a big fan of my of my toaster oven. Yeah, it's a it's a Breville Chef Steps Jewel toaster oven. I think they're like you know 500 bucks, which is on the pricier side for a toaster oven. But I use this thing far more than my normal oven. Like my normal oven has turned into pan lid storage because I only use it a couple times a year now. <laughs> right. Um, okay. but the to- toaster ovens, like they heat up faster. They're more energy efficient. These days, like the ones that have have like good convection fans, they actually brown much more evenly than a large oven does. So yeah, a good quality toaster oven that can hold its temperature and has a really good fan, I find to be completely invaluable in my kitchen these days. Awesome. Okay, and last question, Kenji. Part of my whole motivation for starting this podcast was to try to share with people stories that come from the commercial cooking world, from kitchens, from that whole realm of experience that people who don't work in it just would not otherwise Mm. hear. So is there something from your career, whether when you're on the line or later in your career, 
as a writer, <laughs> let's open up story time. Tell us a story. Uh, other other than sticking a plunger in. <laughs> yeah. Well, that um, one ranks. Yeah. Let's see. I mean, specifically about about working in professional kitchens. Um, you know, I do remember actually at that same restaurant, one uh, number nine Park. One of my very first days on the job, my job. You know, I was asked to cut chives. You know, which is something that fancy restaurants go through a lot of. And the goal with the goal with slicing chives, at least at a fancy restaurant, you want them to be sliced sort of thinner than thinner than their diameter. You know, so the th- they have to be sliced very, very thin, and they have to be sliced very, very clean because, like all alliums, um, you know, onions, garlic, chives, whatever they are, the the more you crush the cells, the more strong and sort of pungent and sharp their flavor becomes. And so you want to sort of very carefully slice the chives with, without crushing them. Um, so that they maintain a really bright flavor and, and, and you get more of their sort of sweetness and natural aroma as opposed to the really strong sort of garlicky pungency of them. Um, so I remember one, one day I was, I was working there slicing these chives um, and I didn't really have the best knife skills at the time. And so I was just there slicing chives and I probably had, um, you know, two nine pans full. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with a nine pan, mm-hmm. but about, about two, quart, two quarts of chive, two deep nine pans of chives. Uh, so two pints of chives already cut. And my, my chef from across the room was like, like Kenji, throw out those chives. I was, like, I was like, "What do you mean? Like you didn't?" She didn't even see them. I was like, uh, "Am I doing something wrong?" And she's like, "Yeah." And and um, it turns out like she could hear me slicing the chives, wow. you know. And so instead of like a clean shh, shh, it was more like a, <laughs> and that's the sound of vegetable cells being crushed. Right. Um, and so she heard, even without looking, she heard that I was that I had ruined those chives. I, I think we ended up using them in like fried rice for family meal or something, but um, we couldn't <laughs> use them for service anymore. And so to me, like the idea that, oh, here is someone who has so much experience in this that without even looking what I've done, without just by hearing it, could tell uh, what was going on. Like I found that to be incredibly impressive. And also, you know, it, it really taught me sort of the value of trying to cook with all your senses. And as a recipe writer, that's one of the things you really try and uh, work on most is like making sure that people working at home, they have the sort of visual and the auditory cues or the or, the oral and oral and olfactory cues, all, all these things as opposed to, you know, like you think, okay, like a recipe, all right, just t- temperature and time. In reality, like temperature and time is not a very good, no. not a very good way to write a recipe, and not a good way to follow a recipe because everybody's stove is going to be different. How long it takes to saute an onion is going to be different, and so if you use your ears, you can hear the difference between an onion being sweated and an onion that's frying, right? So at the early on, the onion's giving off liquid, and so you have this moisture that's going into the pan that's evaporating. Um, once that moisture is, once all the free moisture in the onion has been expressed and has evaporated out of the pan, well, then the pan temperature starts to rise because the energy is no longer being used to evaporate that water and so the pan temperature starts to rise you start sort of getting more of the Maillard browning and so you know just by using your ears you can tell all right these onions are no longer sweating they've now given up all their moisture now they're starting to fry and now's the point at which they're going to start browning so now's a good time if I don't want my onions to brown to stop uh, or if I do want my onions to brown to start paying more attention and stirring them more frequently so just the idea that you know, using your ears is such an important yeah. part of cooking was was not really familiar to me until that point. But it's, I think it's become sort of integral to, well, I think it's integral to any any cook's career as, as you go forward. And especially as a recipe writer, someone who really tries to think about, all right, what's going on in that pan? And what can I tell people at home to make sure that they aren't just relying on, you know, cooking the pan for five minutes, say, you know, cook in the pan until the onions have, you know, until the onion, the sound of the onions shifts from, you know, from the, 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 from the steaming to the sizzle, that kind of stuff I think is very useful uh, and not something I'd ever really thought about until that point. Something happened, this is a supplemental question, but something happened recently that I thought was interesting. Your photo wound up somewhere 
Uh, your photo, right. <laughs> your photo wound up on a wall, and that struck. I think it struck you as unusual. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, so, well, I, the pizza, re- the pizza place that I have gone to more times in my, in fact, the restaurant I've been to more times in my life than anywhere else is this place on Fifty Fourth and Ninth called Sacco Pizza. Uh, I used to go to music school around the corner from there, a place called School for Strings. Uh, it's a Suzuki violin, you know, stringed instrument school, piano and a piano school. It's still there. But I went there from the time I was very little, from the time I was four years old, uh, until um, until sort of my later teenage years. No, in fact, I, yeah, I went up until college. I was going there at least a couple times a week, and uh, so I would eat that pizza a couple times a week, and I would spend a lot of time in the back of that shop playing Street Fighter Two video game. You know, <laughs> uh, they used to have the machine like right next to the pizza oven, and the pizza oven, the back of the oven, used to be completely exposed. It just had like a sign on a, pa- a taped on sign that said hot. And so whoever was on the right controller on Street Fighter, like if you weren't careful, you would burn your elbow um, on the back of the pizza oven. Um, but, I, you know, that it's the kind of place where so that place has been in business for almost 60 years now. Um, and when I was a kid, it was run by a couple of guys named Joe and Dominic, uh, who were um, uh, second generation Italian immigrants from uh, from Sacco, a, t- a, t- a town in Italy. Um, and that's the name of it. The place used to be called Joe and Dominic's Pizza. They changed their name eventually to Sacco Pizza. But, you know, Joe, uh, there, there was a time when when. Um, I, I like, you know, I was uh, probably 11 years old then, and there was like a 13 or 14 year old kid I was playing video games against, and I beat him one too many times. And he, you know, I remember him telling me, like, if you, like, if you beat me again, I'm going to, I'm going to kick your ass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say ass. Yeah, absolutely. If you beat me again, I'm going to kick your ass. (laughs) And so I beat him again, and then he punched me, um, and like shoved me against the pizza oven. I burned my arm, and then Joe, the pizza maker, comes over and like breaks it up and kicks the kid out. Um, yeah, basically came to my rescue. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of shop where we, we feel I have this like very deep connection to it. And over the years, I've gone, I've continued going there. Every time I go back to New York, I, I, I make sure to make a stop there. And so, you know, Joe's son, Pete, um, who's um, a little older than me, but he, you know, he was, he started making pizzas in the, in the shop uh, when I was a, a teenager. Uh, and he now runs the, uh, the shop with Vito, who is Dominic's son. So it's still a family business. And, you know, I go in there and see him all the time. And one of my great friends from music school, his name is Anil, he now has two kids that go to that music school and also go there to eat pizza all the time. Uh, and so every time, you know, th- this past time I was in New York, um, in fact, most of the times I go to New York, I try and get a slice of pizza with Anil at Sacco. Um, and this time he uh, he came and he's like, um, he got, uh, he's like, oh yeah, let me take a picture of you and Pete out front of the shop. And so Pete and I just like stood in front of the shop, took a picture, and then my friend Anil blew it up and had me sign it and then brought it to Pete and <laughs> uh-huh. Pete... Uh, Hung it up in the back of the uh, of the shop, right up there next to uh, I think the cast of um, Law and Order. I think has some signed <laughs> pictures up there. <laughs> uh, Richard Belzer, that's his name, right? He's Law and Order. But uh, so yeah, so that's how I got my picture in a, in a in the back of a pizza shop, and it's the I think it's the only uh, restaurant in the world where my pictures <laughs> framed and up. On, probably the only place in the world where I, my pictures framed up on a wall outside of my own home. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was it was a huge honor and uh and it was really fun and you know Pete's Pete and Vito uh all the all the folks at Sacco uh are good people and uh yeah it's still yeah still my favorite pizza so 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 my favorite pizza anywhere because I I grew up with it of course well fantastic and, <laughs> and a sure sign that you have you have made it you're on the wall <laughs> that's terrific well Kenji thank you so much for taking the time I've really enjoyed talking to you it's uh it's been an honor thanks for being on Chef Demoni. Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me.
That was so much fun. Thank you to Kenji for that great talk and for answering my questions, seeking tips on how to improve my own pizza cooking. So friends, now you know. If you text me a question, you are very likely going to hear back from me with a link to an article that Kenji has written. So do yourself a favor and follow his work, which is both informative and a whole lot of fun. You will find Kenji on Instagram and YouTube. He's very active on both of those platforms. Keep an eye out for his best-selling books. We didn't even get into his books. I am currently working my way through The Walk right now, and it is fantastic. You will also find Kenji in the pages pages, the digital links, uh, you will find him in the New York Times. So follow Kenji. More great advice is there waiting for you. All right, a few housekeeping matters. B and I are leaving very, very soon on another trip. We might actually be in the air when this episode lands in your podcast inbox, and we are off to Italy. We fly into Milan, in and out of Milan, actually, but we fly into Milan, and we have got stops in Piedmont, and then in Bologna, in Venice, and then we're on Sardinia for a week. Can't wait to get that trip started. No doubt I will have something to say about all of the food that we're about to enjoy. In the meantime, please stay in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. That is all at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, just look for me under my name, Graham McLennan, and you can always send me an email at cheftimony.com. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a food-loving friend about it, somebody who perhaps hasn't heard Cheftimony before, and please rate, review, and subscribe to Cheftimony wherever it is that you listen. Hey, you listeners in the United States of America, I've got quite a few reviews on the Canadian version of Apple Podcasts, but only 12 on the American version. So see if you can help me build some numbers there. I would really appreciate that. Okay. That is all for now. Thank you, as always, for joining me here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I will see you again soon, right here on Chef Demonie.